Well, please turn back to Acts chapter 3, and we're going to take as our text this morning, verse 15. Acts chapter 3, verse 15. Now, I've got, uh, I've got lots of books. I love books, and uh, perhaps some of you do as well. And I'm very thankful that uh, over the years that I've been collecting and, and reading books, um, a, a disaster has never befallen my library. Um, I would be very upset if, for example, um, the roof fell in and they were all um, destroyed or, or there was a fire and they were all destroyed because these things are, are precious to me. Um, I've got memories attached to them. I don't want any harm to come to them. But were the worst to happen and the place was to build down and all my uh, burn down and all my books were lost, um, I would be sad about it, but I don't think it would make the 10 o'clock news because they don't really have any particular value to anyone else, do they? They're worth something to me, but they're not unique. Now, uh, a number of years ago when we lived in London, uh, I went to visit Lambeth Palace, which you may know is the, uh, the the residence of the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, he didn't invite me to tea or anything like that. And they had an exhibition on at Lambeth Palace um, called Treasures of Lambeth Palace. And in this exhibition, they had all kinds of wonderful um books and and manuscripts and things including the the prayer book of of queen elizabeth the first and and first uh editions of of the authorized version and all kinds of things like this which are of immeasurable historical value now imagine that the lambeth palace library was to burn down i think that would make the 10 o'clock news wouldn't it because it contains many priceless irreplaceable unique treasures My books aren't so valuable as those books because those books are unique and precious. Now, we can carry that concept, can't we, uh, into other things. Every human life is unique and precious. We see throughout history that War and conflict and disasters have taken countless human lives. And as we've watched and seen the reports from Ukraine, it's been horrific to see how many people have lost their lives, Ukrainians and and Russians as well. And and the loss of their lives is a, a terrible tragedy too, because every life is precious. But when we come to the scriptures and we see the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see a person who is unique and and precious in a way infinitely above every one of our lives and the life of every other person in the world through all of history. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is a man like no other man. Real human nature, a a man with a, a body, with flesh and blood, a beating heart, just as we have. But he was more than a man. He was God in flesh. The righteous one of God. Every other person who has ever lived in this world, each one of us included, 
are sinful and fallen. And we live our lives until God graciously intervenes under under his judgment, condemned because of our sin. But the Lord Jesus Christ was sinless. His life was uniquely precious and valuable in the sight of God, the only righteous one. And so when we read the accounts of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are being confronted with the death of the righteous God-man. What I believe I can legitimately call the greatest crime in history, greater even than the, the criminal deaths that have been perpetrated in Ukraine, greater even, and I, I say this carefully and reverently, greater even a crime than the Holocaust or other things like that because of the unique preciousness and worth of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it's a big claim to make, isn't it? But I believe it's biblical because of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. Jesus is truly unique and uniquely precious as God in flesh. And we see that in a very striking way in Acts 3 verse 15. And I've got three questions that I want to ask and answer from this text that I trust will help us all to see and understand the astonishing, momentous glory of Christ and what he has done. Our first question is, who is he? Our second question, what did they do to him? And our third question, what then does that mean for you, each one of us here this morning? Firstly, who is he? Well, in Acts chapter 3, the Apostle Peter is speaking about Jesus to a great crowd that has assembled by the temple. They've witnessed this amazing miracle of this beggar, a man in his 40s who'd been crippled from birth, and he's been completely healed. So he's walking and leaping and praising God. They've never seen anything like it. Peter had performed the miracle, as it were, but he'd done so by the power of Jesus. And he makes that clear. Verse 6, verse 16 as well. It was Christ's power that was at work to perform this healing. But who is Jesus, the one whose power is at work like this? Well, in verse 13, we see that Jesus is God's servant, whom God has glorified. And then Peter says in verse 14 that Jesus is the holy one and the just who those people had handed over and rejected in favour of Barabbas, that notorious murderer. But there's more. In verse 15, Peter calls Jesus, note, the prince of life. The prince of life. It's an amazing title, isn't it? The word that uh, is used here for prince is only used four times in the New Testament, and it's always used to describe Jesus. It's got a range of meanings. It can include founder or author or originator or leader or ruler. That's, that's the, the range of, of ideas 
in that word. And if we work back through the different uses, I think it helps us to see what an, what an astonishing title this is that Peter gives to the Lord Jesus Christ. So in Hebrews 12 and verse 2, the word is used, and there Jesus is called the author of our faith. That's the same word there, the author of our faith. In other words, our faith rests upon who he is and what he's done for us. Our faith has its source in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his power. But does that just mean that he is the founder of a religion in the same way that, that Buddha is or Muhammad is? Is he, is he the author of our faith in that sense? Well, no, it's much more than that. And one of the other references brings that out. Hebrews 2 and verse 10. And in that verse, Jesus is called the captain or the author of our salvation. It's the same word again, the captain, the, the author of our salvation. And this, I think, is stronger. It's more explicit because it's talking not just about a faith that we've been given, that we've entered into, but it's talking about our salvation. Jesus is the, the author of that salvation itself. He has founded our salvation. His life and his death and his resurrection has actually secured for us forgiveness of sins. It's brought to us a, a new heart, a living and a certain hope of resurrection, everlasting life. We have this because of the Lord Jesus Christ. He did it. He accomplished our salvation. He is the author of our salvation. Then let me take you to the other cross-reference. This is Acts chapter 5. And verse 31, where the same word is used there. And Jesus is called, sorry, Acts chapter 5, verse 31. Jesus is called our prince and saviour. And Peter's describing the Lord Jesus Christ in that verse as he now is. He's, he's exalted to God's right hand. He's in the place of power and authority and majesty. He is prince and saviour. And so these three other references that use this word, they're revealing to us the, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in his person and in his saving work for us. And these truths about the Lord Jesus Christ should humble us. They should fill us with awe. This is who our Savior is, the Prince of Glory, the author of our salvation. And when we understand how glorious and exalted the Lord Jesus Christ is should cause us to see our sin, that we ourselves don't match up to him and to flee to him for this salvation that he has purchased for us. But you know, there's even more in our text this morning when in chapter 3 and verse 15, Peter calls Jesus the Prince of Life because he's saying there that all life finds its origin in the Lord Jesus Christ. That he is the one who, who rules over life. He is the prince of life. Wonderful, isn't it? Jesus, um, he says 
in, in John's gospel that he that he came into the world. Now, you could say that in the sense of all of us because we're all born into this world. But when Jesus uses that phrase, he's saying more than that he was just born. He was saying he came and he tells us where he came from. He came from from heaven, from glory into this world. He came into this world that he had made. He's the one Hebrews chapter one says through whom God made the world. So all things came into being through the Lord Jesus Christ. God created everything through his word. In the beginning was the word, says John. The word was with God. The word was God. And as God the Son, he has existed eternally. And that's why he had glory with the Father before the world began. That's why he is the prince of life, not a created being, but the prince of all life. And Christ is also the originator of spiritual life. True eternal life, that eternal life that you and I all need comes from and through the Lord Jesus Christ and from nowhere else. Jesus said, in, uh, in John chapter 5, amazing words. I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. He has a voice that wakes the dead. And when he was standing there by the tomb of his friend Lazarus, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. What a claim to make that he is the source and the dispenser of everlasting, eternal life. No one else can make that claim, can they, without being a, a, a total liar and a fraud. But Jesus spoke truly and his Deeds and the testimony of his father demonstrated the truthfulness that he is the eternal son of God and the only saviour of sinners. Who is he? Who is Jesus? He's the prince of life. Well, what did they do to him? What did they do to the prince of life? It's stated very plainly there in verse 15. Peter says to them, you killed the prince of life. You killed the prince of life. Just think on that statement for a moment. It's momentous, isn't it? You killed the prince of life. Now, these, these early Christian preachers, the apostles and the, the others with them, they didn't shy away from bold Let's call it blunt statements of the truth. Peter repeats very similar things um, just in the next chapter. Chapter 4, verse 10 it says, whom you crucified. Doesn't beat around the bush. Chapter 5 and verse 30. Whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. When Stephen is giving his testimony. He looked at those religious leaders 
And he called them betrayers and murderers of God's own son. And those people were religious. They were God-fearing. But they were people who blatantly disregarded the sixth commandment. God said, you shall not kill. But that's precisely what they did. The premeditated murder of the Prince of Life, the Lord of Glory, as Paul calls him in one of his letters. Now, the four gospel writers, they tell the story, don't they? And no doubt over Good Friday and Easter Sunday, you'll be hearing more of these things. But the gospel writers give their eyewitness accounts and and relate the testimony of others about how the Prince of Life was murdered. We read part of Luke's record of it, didn't we? Of the Lord Jesus Christ crucified between two criminals. And as he hung there in the agony of body and soul, what did he do? He, He prayed for his killers. He prayed for the forgiveness of those who had done these evil things to him. Those scoffing rulers and crowds who gathered around the foot of the cross to hurl their abuse at him. And yet he said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. You see, even as Christ was dying, he was still seeking the life of his killers. Father, forgive them. Father, bring these men to repentance and faith so that they may receive the eternal life that I'm purchasing here on the cross. And the Lord Jesus Christ heard the words of that repentant criminal and he made his wonderful promise to him today you will be with me in paradise from the agony of that cross the where the criminal died after he had to have his legs broken so that he would sag and suffocate and yet Jesus said to him you'll be with me in in paradise because you've come to trust in me there was Jesus dispensing eternal life to a dying criminal Beautiful, isn't it? Then the darkness came over the land as the Lord Jesus bore the penalty for human sin. And there were men around that cross who declared that Jesus was innocent. And then he gives his great, confident, final cry to the Father. And after that, we read, he breathed his last. He gave up his spirit. Although he was crucified, although it's true to say he was killed, even murdered, Jesus also said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. He remained in control of his life. The prince of life breathed his last. He laid down his life for our sins. And the prince of life was dead. And Luke, in that uh, passage that we read, he records a fascinating detail. The last verse that I read to you from that chapter in Luke. And the whole crowd who had come together to that site, seeing what had been done, they beat their breasts and returned. I, I can picture these people as they 
as they see and, uh, and hear the things that are taking place there on Calvary's hill. And they see the way the Lord Jesus Christ breathes his last after uttering that cry of victory. And they know that something momentous has taken place there. And there's this kind of horror and, and grief and guilt that seems to rest upon the people who have been there gulping at this sight. And they beat their breasts and they go away. Because the prince of life is dead. Who is he? He's the prince of life. What did they do to him? They killed the prince of life. What then does this mean for you? What does this mean for each one of us and for the, the people of Christ and the people of the world? How does the death of the Prince of Life affect us? Well, I love the title of, of John Owen's book, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. I think that summarises it so well, doesn't it? When the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross... Yes, the prince of life yielded up his life, but in doing so, he was killing death. This was not merely the unjust killing of a good man. It was also the death of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isn't that an amazing statement as well? God himself, the father, had, had planned this event to take place and God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, he willingly submitted to those cruelties and that death. Father, Son and Holy Spirit were all working together as Christ yielded up his life on the cross. They were, they were acting in love. Love for this lost, rebellious, sinful world. Love for us here this morning. It was our sin, the sin of this fallen world, this rebellious, straying world, our sin that brought us under condemnation, but flowing from God's love and gracious heart came this plan to, to cover our sin to rescue us from death and hell and condemnation. And the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished that there at the cross. Because as he died, he was paying the full penalty for our sins. In the death of the Father's beloved one, his one and only son, the penalty for sin was being paid. And I'm sure come Good Friday, you'll be hearing more about this. I hope I'm not stealing your pastor's thunder for what he was planning to preach on Friday morning or Friday evening. Friday morning, sometime on Friday, you know. But even if he was thinking of preaching on this text, I'm, I'm sure he won't mind that you're reminded again that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that Christ died for us, the just for the unjust to bring us to God. 
that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. That's what it was all about. That's why he came and he went to the cross. And then on the third day, gloriously raised to life again. And Christ was vindicated. He was proved right by his resurrection. And he's shown to us and to the world that death is dead. Christ has won. Love has conquered. I love the way the Apostle Paul explains all of these things in 2 Timothy chapter 1. He says this, speaking of our Saviour Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He has abolished death. He's lost his ability to drag us down to hell. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he has conquered death for us. Whilst physical death awaits every one of us, Christ has destroyed it. He has stripped it of its power to harm or destroy us because he has passed that way before us and for us. Remember those words of Jesus at Lazarus's tomb? Death as a judgment for sin, the second death, the final condemnation for our sin is no more. Because in Christ, we are set free. We are justified. Instead, there is life. Listen to these words from Hebrews 5 and verse 9. Having been perfected, he, Christ, became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He became the author of eternal salvation. What can be more secure than that? This is what Christ has accomplished for us. For those who obey him, in other words, those who come, as the gospel calls, in true repentance of sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's exactly how the Apostle Peter applies these things back there in Acts chapter 3. The Prince of Life, he says, has died upon the cross. He was killed by wicked men. And yet, in God's perfect plan, he suffered the punishment we deserve for our sin and was raised to life again in the power of an indestructible, endless life. And so Peter comes to his appeal there, doesn't he, in verse 19 of, of Acts 3. He says, repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. Sins that Christ has taken and borne for us on the cross. Repent and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of of the Lord. It's only by turning to the Lord Jesus Christ and trusting in him, turning from sin, leaving all of that behind, confessing it to God, saying, Father, forgive me for my sin. For the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for sinners. And then trust in Christ, no longer in the tomb, but risen glorified and seated at the Father's right hand, the Prince of life today, 
and tomorrow and forever. Prince of life. And if you turn and trust in him, then all of the rich benefits of his life and his death and his resurrection are going to flow to you. And to your life to bless you times of refreshing sins blotted out the life of God in the soul of man. What a promise. What a blessing to be united by faith to the prince of life. The Apostle John summarizes really everything I'm trying to say to you this morning in a wonderful text in his first letter. He says, he who has the son has life. Do you have the son? Do you have the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour? If you come to him in repentance and faith, cast yourself on his mercy. The prince of life will gather you up, draw you to himself, bring you to his father. and You will enjoy his life everlasting in his presence. Well, may God grant life to every one of us here and through you to the people of this town and beyond. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his eternal salvation that he has authored for us. We thank you that in him is life. And we pray that you will draw each one of us and and hide us, as it were, in Christ, that our life will be hidden with Christ in God, and that you'll be with us to empower us, to equip us, to keep us, until that day when we see our Prince of Life face to face. For we ask it in his glorious name. Amen. Let's close by singing 203, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. 203.